On this week's edition of New York Now, a new look at this year's statewide elections, including the race for governor after the June primary. Then, a first-in-the-nation program to measure air quality in New York. And later, a new statewide mental health hotline is now active. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Crime continues to be a top issue in the New York news cycle. New York City Mayor Eric Adams held a press conference this week highlighting a handful of people who've been repeatedly arrested in the five boroughs. And that press conference reignited the debate over bail reform and whether it's driving the higher crime rate. The issue is almost entirely political. Republicans have framed it as a main driver of crime, and we know from polling that crime is a top election issue. And Democrats have slammed Republicans for that, saying they're spreading misinformation to score political points. But the truth is, there has been no independent research and analysis outside the media with a clear answer on who's right. And that's put Governor Kathy Hochul in a tough spot, trying to lower crime rates through work with law enforcement while defending the state's bail laws. You'll remember that she worked with lawmakers to amend those laws in April. Here's what she told reporters this week. It's hard to draw correlations between what's going on and bail when you see an escalation of crime all over the country. Other cities are in far worse shape than our major cities. But I don't take comfort in that. The job is still not done. I want to be the first state where not we slow down the increase in crime. We start going down. And those issues of crime and bail reform could have a big impact on this year's elections. We saw the first polls released this week on New York statewide races after the June primary. Let's get into the numbers with Michael Gormley from Newsday. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. So it's always fascinating when we get the first look after a primary, because now we know kind of a baseline of where we are going into the general election. So let's start with a race that I think most people will know about, the governor's race, Hochul versus Zeldin. So she has 53% compared to Zeldin's 39%. What do you think about that lead, Mike? My first impression is I don't know if 14 points is a big enough gap that, that Hochul should be celebrating right now. But you tell me. I think that's an awful good point. Um, the, uh, the Siena poll gave it a 14-point uh, lead for, for Governor Hochul, the Democrat. Um, I guess I expected more. And i got to preface this with people I respect think that's a solid lead and that it'll only get bigger for Hochul. But me looking at this, uh, she has, she's the first woman running for elected, uh, to be elected governor. Um, we had the Roe v. Wade decision by the Republican Supreme Court that struck it down. It seemed like there's an, and, and uh, Lee Zeldin, the congressman from Long Island who's running against her as a Republican, um, he wouldn't vote to certify the 2020 election loss by Trump. So right. all of that, I guess I expected 20 points or more. Um, but, you know, it's early, and as you said, it's a baseline. And, you know, you and I both know that, you know, just a little over a year ago, people thought Andrew Cuomo was going to run for win re-election. So anything could happen in Albany. Right. I'm interested to see what Zeldin's final strategy is going into November. As of now, he's really hammered Hochul on things like cost of living. Um, obviously, he he's pro-life, so she has that advantage of most New Yorkers favoring Roe v. Wade instead of opposing it. So she has that advantage. I'm interested to see what he actually does to try to cut away at that lead, because it looks like now there 
it's it's a wide gap, certainly, but I think it's slim enough that if he really worked, maybe he could get closer. But I just don't know what he does. Well, well like well, you and I do, and the public doesn't have to do this, but as reporters, you and I do this, we look at the cross tabs of, of these polls, and that gives an indication deeper in the poll. And in that, Lee Zeldin, the Republican, um, he's doing really well upstate, he's doing really well in the suburbs. Frankly, the suburbs have been the key to statewide elections in the last bunch of years. Always. Um, and Governor Hochul, she's from the suburbs, she's from an upstate suburb outside of Buffalo, so you'd have thought she'd do better than that. And as you're saying, Lee Zeldin has some powerful issues. The economy's not good, crime is rising, um, he's, he's talking about changes. This almost, the crosstabs almost look like a few years ago, if you remember, when there was just an anti-Democrat or anti-incumbent feeling yes. out there. That's what it looks a little bit like, and we'll have to see, because Governor Hochul could get caught up in that, although given that Democrats do have a, a better than two-to-one enrollment advantage statewide. You know, let's circle back to what you think the top issues are going to be for voters in this election in November. I think a lot of things can change between now and then. It's, it's right. only a few months, but, you know, issues come up all the time. I don't know if uh, abortion would have necessarily been a big issue this year in this year's elections if the Supreme Court hadn't overturned Roe v. Wade. So when we're looking at what's going to matter in November, do you think that it's cost of living and crime? That seems to be the consensus that that will be the issues that voters are going to speak to at the polls. Going back decades, uh, voters have been shown to, to be most focused on economics. How is their, their family budget faring? How is it doing, especially judging an incumbent by that standard? Um, up there always, and often as, as a top figure, is crime. So. Lee Zeldin, the Republican, he might have a shot here because he, those, that's really his, his sweet spot. Um, which you bring up really a good point is the, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision led by the Republican majority to strike down Roe v. Wade, abortion rights. That is resonating, though. We have to see what happens. Remember what happened in Kansas, um, where there was an overwhelming opposition to a referendum that would have allowed the legislature out there to um, make abortion illegal. So. Yeah. It seems to be resonating with voters. We'll have to see what happens in New York. I think for sure, but I do think the Republicans have been just very, very effective with their crime messaging since bail reform went into effect. Honestly, it's been, you know, almost every day. It's the issue that we hear about, and as we saw at the top of the show this week, that's a big issue this week. But we do have to leave it there. Michael Gormley from Newsday, thank you so much. Thank you, man. All right, switching gears now to some environmental news. You might remember three years ago when New York passed a landmark law called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. It's considered the most ambitious climate law in the country, and a big part of it was about improving air quality. Now, for some of you, that might not be a problem. And for others, it could be a problem and you just don't know it. But for other communities in New York, air pollution is a huge issue and the residents of those communities have borne the brunt of that damage. So the state is now launching a first-in-the-nation project to measure and monitor air quality statewide. This week, we take you to the start of that project across the state. Take a look. Governor Kathy Hochul first announced the statewide community air monitoring initiative during the September 2021 Climate Week. It's the first statewide air quality monitoring effort in the United States. And last month, the work began to map hyperlocal air pollution and greenhouse gases across the state of New York. Monitoring is underway in the Bronx, Buffalo-Niagara Falls area, the Capital Region, and Manhattan. 
and six additional communities will start monitoring this fall. The initiative is using mobile mapping technology and professional analytics from a private company called Aquama. New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation hopes the data will drive strategies to address air quality issues in New York's most vulnerable communities while contributing to the state's nation-leading climate goals. So this is the beginning of this really incredible initiative that no other state has done. We're doing it in order to, to improve lives and improve health all across New York. The use of data to monitor air quality is not new, but where that data comes from and how it's collected is unique. We in New York want to find out what air people are breathing, and that means using the best available technology. We've been doing that for years with stationary monitoring sources all around the state, um, but times have changed. There's now new technologies that are available, and we knew that we could go to the next level, which is actually bringing, bringing our monitoring down to the ground level. Aquama and the company's CEO, Davida Herzl, are pioneering an entirely new way to diagnose the health of our air and track climate-changing pollution. Powered by their network of roving and stationary sensors, Aquama measures air pollution and greenhouse gases at unprecedented scales and with block-by-block -block resolution. We've developed um, specialized sensors um, so it's a, it's a small device um, uh, that sits in the back of a vehicle or on, or on a vehicle. Um, and those sensors are collecting data once per second through um, a, a tube that is gathering air um, outside the vehicle. Uh, and then it comes into the sensor, the sensor, um, we analyze the data on board and then it goes to the cloud where all of the measurements get stitched together into these maps. Um, but we're measuring multiple different pollutants at the same time. So all of the pollutants that impact human health, all the greenhouse gases, as well as toxics. So the kinds of toxic pollutants that are associated with uh, petrochemical um, uh, production and other uses of fossil fuels. So by putting this technology into the back of these vehicles that are traveling around constantly on loops over the course of a year, we're then getting down to the lot level what people are breathing at the street level. And that's incredibly important because that enables us to then make policy decisions based on the stuff that we're finding and what people are breathing very locally, not just regionally. The science has shown that air pollution varies by up to 800% from one block to the next. And so in order to really understand uh, where those emissions that are changing the climate and are impacting people to understand where they're coming from and to understand who they're impacting, you need to be able to measure them at this really high resolution because pollution varies so much from one address from one block to the next. The 10 communities selected for monitoring were identified as having a disproportionate air pollution burden based on criteria developed by the state's Climate Justice Working Group. The boundaries for monitoring in each area were determined using community input and current understanding of pollution sources. It was intentional. We, we were very intentional about selecting disadvantaged communities for this purpose, in particularly in communities of, of color, disadvantaged communities that have borne the brunt of, of pollution for years. The Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, passed in New York in 2019, recognizes that climate change doesn't affect all communities equally. The law tasked the Climate Justice Working Group with the development of criteria to identify disadvantaged communities to ensure that frontline and otherwise underserved communities benefit from the state's historic transition to cleaner, greener sources of energy, reduced pollution and cleaner air and economic opportunities. 
Arif Ula is the executive director of South Bronx Unite. I think that it's safe to say that communities like ours, primarily black, brown, and low-income communities, have endured the racist legacy of redlining, uh, which saw it entirely appropriate to burden us with one polluting facility after another. And we've shouldered uh, this heavy consequence uh, of the fossil fuel economy, of pollution, of climate change, and many other environmental injustices for, for decades. Uh, and so with this initiative that the DEC has announced um, to document air pollution, we'll be able to have the hard data we need to be able to strengthen our advocacy. We know, people in our community already know that the air is toxic. Uh, and we have been saying that for many years, but now that will be backed up by data that supports what we've been saying um, and that will strengthen our advocacy. There are hotspots within disadvantaged communities, diesel trucks, uh, localized sources of air pollution that are very significant. Uh, being able to get it down on the street in those communities and select those 10 communities and find out where those problems are uh, enables us to then put those solutions in place. Resources that will come into our community as a result of uh, the, the documentation of air pollution that the DEC is doing, as a result of the policies that we'll, we'll hopefully be able to um, bring about. Um, these are exactly the types of resources that our community needs to be able to really mitigate um, the air pollution um, and improve the air quality in our community. Deploying resources where they are needed most is paramount to combat the changing climate of the world and here in New York State. And that's just impossible without the data. None of us can, 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 can survive without breathing for a few minutes, and yet we don't have the data to ensure that you know, we are, um, as human beings, really living, you know, creating the most healthy possible environments for each other, and two, that we're creating a long-term sustainable planet. And so we figured out how to generate those measurements so that now we have the data to understand the problem really at that granular scale and drive action. And, um, and that's why I'm just so impressed with what the state is doing, with the governor's leadership, with, with Basil's leadership, to really say we're committing to measurement so that, you know, to maximize accountability, maximize transparency and really take action that we can measure and know are the investments that we're making actually having a benefit. So um, it's a huge deal. We see incredible change uh, through through uh, the climate, the climate crisis that we're now uh, subject to. Uh, we see it here in New York. We felt it in 2012 with Superstorm Sandy, uh, Hurricane Ida last year, flooding uh, parts of New York City, uh, dramatic damage. Uh, just a few months before that, I was up in up in Steuben County, um, you know, rural New York, with a flood that wiped out a couple of villages. And you know, this is an equal opportunity crisis. It is really hitting everybody uh, at the same time, and we may not may not always see it, um, but we need to we need to act. We need to react and act and get proactive. And and that's really fundamentally why New York is taking this action with this with this. Uh, mobile air monitoring program is so that we can act effectively and, and make change. And the state expects to get some initial data back in the next few months, but officials say it's going to take longer to actually analyze that data and see results. So that's something we'll keep an eye on. But moving on now, New York is taking a new step toward bolstering the state's services related to mental health. 
you can now dial 988 if you're experiencing a mental health crisis in New York, and you'll be connected to trained counselors who can help you through that crisis. And if you still need help after that call, those counselors can connect you with more services. It's kind of like 911, but for your mental health. For more on that, WCNY's Dave Lombardo spoke with the Commissioner of the State Office of Mental Health, Dr. Anne-Marie Sullivan. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Commissioner. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for bringing this issue forward. Well, so for starters, if someone is going to call or text the 988 hotline moving forward, what should they expect? And who are the New Yorkers that you envision utilizing this hotline? When you contact 988, you're going to get the, you're going to speak directly to a crisis counselor. And that counselor is there really to hear whatever your issues are, large or small. So people contact um, a crisis line like this because they may feel acutely like they want to harm themselves, or they may be a parent who's worried about a child who's in school and is acting differently and they're concerned they're not so interested in school anymore, all the way to an elderly person who may be feeling somewhat depressed and isolated. So it's a crisis support line. It is there for you to call about a crisis, large or small, and to have someone to talk to. The average time that someone's on the phone with someone is 20 minutes. So this is really a, a crisis support line. Now, if after the time with the crisis um, support counselor, um, you feel more services are needed or a referral, they will make that happen. And it will be a very, what we like to call a warm handoff where they'll make sure that you have someone to make that appointment with and someone to see. And sometimes um, if um, this problem is serious enough and you feel you need someone actually there, then we can deploy some of our other services. But the vast majority of times, um, about 80 to 85% of calls support counselor and maybe a warm referral after that. So you can really expect to talk to a live person who will listen and help you deal with whatever your crisis is. So this project did not get set up overnight. So what sort of time, energy, and money went into getting to us to this moment where the service is live statewide? Well, it's an adapt. Um, and about two years ago, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline nationally, um, it was an, an act passed by Congress that said that now it had to be in the number 988 for easy access and quick access. But what that meant for the states was that we had to have enhance our call centers so that we could deal with an increased volume and have most of those calls, the vast majority being answered within New York State. So really the state is funding the bulk of this and the state will be funding it on an ongoing basis. It also meant that we had to get a whole host of stakeholders. Um, individuals will be using the hotline, providers, um, police, um, individuals from 911, which to talk with us and understand what 988 was. So for two years, we've been having stakeholder meetings. And then we've been dealing with the technology of getting our crisis call centers. We have 13 crisis call centers across the state and they're all up and operational and have been answering calls since uh, sometimes before that, but now everybody's up and operating as of July 16th with 988. So you mentioned that idea of ongoing funding. Do you think at some point there'll need to be some sort of dedicated revenue structure like the way there is with 911, which has a fee on people's phone bills? That's one way to go, and some states have chosen that. But the other way is to embed, uh, which New York so far is doing, is a certain amount of dollars um, in the budget on an ongoing basis. 
And the commitment that we have from the governor and the division of budget is that 60 million will continue so that we can have the crisis lifeline going. It basically varies by state, whether they do um, a tax, something similar to 911, or they use state funds. So aside from talking with handsome television personalities, what are you doing to spread awareness of the 988 hotline so people don't automatically default to the 911 option when they're having a crisis? Well, we're putting the word out there um, in terms of social media. We're putting the word out um, to all our providers to talk with their clients and the people they work with about it. And we're doing announcements and interviews like this with um, individuals like you who are interested in 988 to make sure that people start to use it. Because I think that uh, it's catching on. Uh, the first, um, the week before, uh, we had 450, approximately 450 calls a day that went to the um, National Suicide Prevention. Since July 16th, it's been about 650 to 700 a day. So it's definitely catching on and being used more and more because 988 is simple to remember. And I think also it sounds easy for people to use. It can also text and chat. So obviously you want people to take advantage of this, but if you potentially have new people trying to take advantage of mental health services, it's going to mean more demand on our existing mental health services network, which is stressed, you know, to, to say the least. So are you concerned at all about overexerting the system by bringing so many more patients potentially online? Well, there is a concern that we make sure that we have all the services that are needed. And I think that we've got great support at this point in time to establish uh, increased services, in particular what we're calling crisis stabilization centers. They will be coming up hopefully by early next year. And we've already awarded um, nine grants. And those will provide uh, comprehensive services, both mental health and substance use, for anyone who walks in the door. And those stabilization centers um, will help work with people for up to 23 hours. They can also be referrals from the um, 988 line to the stabilization centers. We are also growing our mobile crisis capacity and expecting that to be significantly increased over the next um, year or so. And we are working with all of our clinics and all of our current system uh, to be able to take uh, referrals from 988 if that's necessary. Uh, the important thing though about 988 is also that it provides a lot of service just right there on the phone. So when people call often they find that that 20 minute talk or that conversation is something that helps them a great deal. And about 80% of calls are dealt with on the phone. So I think while there will be an increased need for services, we are building the service system. And we are concerned because we all know there's a national workforce crisis and we're also working to try to um, engage more and more people in the social services field. Do you have a goal for wait times when people do call the 988 hotline? Because you know, for some people making that making that outreach can be a, a sort of a tentative thing where if they don't immediately get that help, they might give up. Yeah, we look for three to four rings. So it shouldn't go longer than that. It shouldn't. And by and large, we're pretty good at picking up very quickly on the phone because you're absolutely right. It's uh, very important that people don't sit there and wait or get call waiting or something that says we'll be on the phone. You get picked up right away. You do have an option of asking for Spanish if you're Spanish speaking. Otherwise, we have a language line. Oh, you could go directly to a veterans line. But after that, you get right on the line with person. There's no waiting. And we monitor that um, very uh, closely across the state, across the nation. 
And assuming there is a demand, a growing demand for this hotline, do you feel like you have the flexibility with the infrastructure right now or the availability to grow uh, moving forward so that you can handle any sort of influx of calls? I think we do. You know, I mean, there are various projections. Um, we're at about 650 calls, a little more a day now. Some people think probably by the end of the year, maybe we'll be up to, you know, 800, something like that. We're, we're planned for this. So I really do think that we'll be able to accommodate. And we do have the flexibility to expand if we need to. We've hired new crisis counselors. We've trained a lot of crisis counselors. The training is very intense. Um, and basically, um, individuals are for two months are kind of coached to make sure they know how to do this work. So I think that um, I think we're prepared now. Now, if it were a huge burst, we would have to get a little more flexible and push. But I think it's been projected out that we should be able to cover the um, increase in call demand. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Ann Sullivan. She's the commissioner of the State Office of Mental Health. Commissioner, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about 988 and get all our New Yorkers to feel comfortable asking for help. And as the commissioner said, the 988 number is now active statewide. And we'll put some other mental health resources up on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. But before we let you go, a short trip back in time. It was this week last year that Andrew Cuomo's political career was put to the test. That was after several women accused Cuomo of sexual misconduct. Those allegations ranged from inappropriate remarks to one woman who claimed Cuomo groped her in the executive mansion in Albany. And at the time, we were in a waiting game. Cuomo had asked the state AG, Tish James, to look into those claims, hoping to be cleared of any wrongdoing. But the result of that probe was very different. This was AG James last year. The independent investigation has concluded that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, and in doing so, violated federal and state law. That was the day the AG's office issued the findings of the investigation, in a bombshell report that ultimately led to Cuomo's downfall. He's denied the claims, which never made it to court, but he resigned a week later anyway. Since then, he's mostly been laying low, putting out the occasional statement, and figuring out what's next. And that's something we will certainly be watching. But we'll leave it there for the week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.